0: Animale
1: Welcome to Freedom of Species, bringing animal advocacy to the airwaves. And thank you very much to Sally with her fantastic show called Out of the Pan, which discusses all things genderful. If you've missed Sally's show, she does podcasts. So just go to the 3CR website and you can listen to recent shows there. Freedom of Species, we cover all... All issues concerning animals includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and importantly appreciation. We are broadcasting from 3CR Studios in Melbourne, Australia. Live streaming and recent podcasts are available via the 3CR website. All podcasts are on the Freedom of Species website and iTunes. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Emma Townsend. It's getting to a time of year um, in the summer holidays where many of us are going to pack up and go to our beautiful national parks or into the vast countryside for a bit of fresh air and to wind down after a busy year. There's no denying they are beautiful places and not many of us would therefore question how these environments are managed if confronted with the question of killing pest animals or culling native species populations, many would shrug their shoulders and sigh. Oh, well, that's just unfortunate, but what has to happen for the benefit of overall uh, ecology or it's a necessary evil that the experts deal with? With that thought of uneducated justification, we quickly blind ourselves from the extreme cruelty unleashed onto the pest species of the day. Once one reads more about these mass killings, it is quickly revealed how incredibly cruel the ways in which we kill off species we choose not to want in the environment. What adds salt to the wound is that it's been shown. After decades of shooting, baiting and killing, the killings don't actually work if the outcome we all truly want is to decrease numbers of a certain population in the longer term. Ecologists have won the highest awards on proving this and you can check out the work by Arian Wallach, for example, from the Dingo for Biodiversity Project for more information. So when it comes to what we call management of populations, it is killing and we are focusing on the poison that is that is used today called 1080. It's a gobsmackingly cruel, slow way to kill any living being. The Animal Justice Party organised a summit um, a couple of months ago to discuss 1080. There were many great, informative speakers there and today I will just play three of the talks because it does take uh, some deeper listening uh, be, and to really become informed of this issue. The host is Linda Stoner from Animal Liberation who will introduce the speakers after this.
2: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live.
3: So, Mel Browning is a scientist with a strong interest in conservation sparked by her father, a retired veterinarian and CSIRO animal health research scientist. Family discussions growing up revolved around species losses and poison trials to control so-called pest species such as rabbits and cats. The focus on poisons as a solution was something that didn't resonate with Mel, especially after witnessing her own dog affected by 1080 after eating a poisoned rabbit as a teenager. This led Mel to her own research on the true facts about 1080 and has, as a result, she's become a passionate anti-1080 and pro-dingo advocate. This passion has taken Mel to Canberra for two consecutive roundtable events held by former, thankfully, threatened species commissioner Gregory Andrews, as well as lobbying government, writing articles, further research, preparing submissions and liaising with fellow scientists and advocates. Would you please make Mel Browning very welcome? (laughs) Mel, I'm going to start with a multi-pronged question. What exactly is compound 1080 and how does it affect animals? How is it used and for what purpose? Is it dangerous to
2: humans and what effect, if so, does it have? Okay, thanks, Linda. Um, Okay, so I'm going to start by saying what compound 1080 isn't. And uh, there's been a lot of information put out in the media by our government about what it is. And I'm telling you, it's not humane. It's not naturally occurring. No species is immune. It's not safer than shampoo, as our previous Threatened Species Commissioner, Gregory Andrews, would tell you. Um, It is not safe to drink in tea, as he would also tell you. Um, And it's only degradable under specific conditions, and there is no antidote. Compound 1080 is actually a synthetically manufactured organofluorine compound. It is like a colourless to white fluffy powder in its raw state. It's known as mono, sodium monofluoroacetate, sodium fluoroacetate or fluoroacetate. Um, it's, ex- it's an extremely toxic metabolic poison and it's used to control pest animals. Um, it was developed around the 1940s. Hitler thought it might be a fantastic um, chemical warfare agent because it's odorless, it's colorless, it's tasteless, it's water-soluble, it's stable extremely toxic and with delayed action could avoid detection. Now, he never deployed it, thankfully, um, because he deemed it too inhumane and dangerous for his SS electrics to handle. Um, The actual name, 1080, is the poison catalogue number, so that's where that comes from. Um, After World War II, the patent um, was picked up by Monsanto. Don't we love them? So the highly concentrated 1080 compound was used as a pesticide in the US um, to kill mostly wolves and coyotes and rodents. Environmental lobbyists in 1972 lobbied President Nixon and it was banned um, because there was a lot of off-target species of protected animals like your um, hawks, your eagles, your your grizzly bears. Um, And it has been reintroduced into the US in small quantities now just in (laughs) livestock protection collars for sheep. So um, that's the history there. Now, the um, patent was transferred to Tull Chemical Corporation in um, Alabama in the US in 1955. Can everyone hear me, by the way? And they they are the only legal uh, producer of 1080 worldwide. And if you have a look at the Google Maps, that little blue shed in a very nondescript back street in Alabama is where it all happens... Um, the raw ingredient is then shipped to Australia, and we have two main manufacturers in Australia. We've got Animal Control Technologies and PAX National, and they turn the raw ingredient into pre-prepared baits. Um, our government also have a hand in it. So our um, Federal Department of Environment have invested from their Threat Abatement Program, it looks like about $4.7 million into development of a history <coughs> bait but with a double S, it's a feral cat bait. It's earmarked for biodiversity hotspots like your Kimberleys. Um, and, uh, yeah, they have yeah, they own the patent on it. Um, our Western Australian Parks and Wildlife um, have a feral cat bait called a cat. they own the, own the patent on. It's also another um, 1080 bait. And what you've got to realise with feral cat baits is dingoes die. So you're killing the very predator... That can manage feral cats naturally <coughs> with the baiting programs. So, field trials of a rat-a-cat in dingo um, habitat actually showed that more dingoes died than cats of this particular bait. Um, what does the World League for um, Protection of Animals say about 1080? It's a slow killer. It's, animals suffer a horrific death, and herbivores can take up to 44 hours of agony to die. Um, carnivores can take up to 21 hours, and the speed of death is really dependent on the metabolism of the particular animal. Um, every, everything dies from 1080, basically, at it, 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 you know, the right concentrations from the <coughs> insects to the elephants, um, including humans. So, um, the RSPCA deem it an inhumane poison, they don't support it um, based on their evidence. Um, and um, I've just uh, got some quotes here from um, a wonderful toxicology professor from New Zealand called Ian Shaw. Um, he's saying 1080 does not discriminate. Any cell that enters in any animal or person, it, it, it dies. So 1080 interrupts the met- metabolic process to the cells, kills the cells, they die. Um, so if anyone tells you that 1080 can discriminate between pests, and native animals, they are talking utter, utter, utter rubbish. So there's the words from our learned toxicologist. Um, is it naturally occurring? Well, uh, sodium monofluoroacetate, fluoroacetate 1080 is not naturally occurring. It's synthetically manufactured. It is um, related to potassium fluoroacetate that is found in some shrubs around the world and in small pockets in Australia in um, southwest corner of WA and parts of Queensland. So it is chemically distinct and it's in much greater concentrations in a bait than it is in a plant. So it's it's unrelated. It's also non reactive and stable under normal temperature and pressure conditions and its slow decomposition um, means that it, it is a serious it poses a serious environmental risk. So, here I've got the material safety data sheets from the animal control technologies manufacturer in Australia, and they actually say (coughs) it is non-reactive under normal conditions, stable for extended periods of time, in brackets, indefinitely. So, you know, under normal ambient temperatures, it, it is very stable. So, it does break down. Only under certain conditions, and only in only when certain microbes are present in the soil and water. Um, in cold, arid conditions, it's very, very slow to decompose. And the trials done of the microbial breakdown process have been done in laboratories. Sure. So, you know, in the real world, there's not a lot of information about its um, decomposition. Um, it is known that some plants can also defluorinate that molecule to make it non toxic. Um, what you've got to realise is that pest control in this country is very big business, and there have been questions raised about the funding of 1080, and probably none more so than the $50 million spent in Tasmania based on a fox sighting and some fox scats. And um, one um, independent MP actually raised some very serious questions as to um, whether it was actually a real situation or whether there was some kind of hoax behind it. Some of those cats were found to have been taken from the mainland. Um, Only last year, the um, investigation within the Department of of, um, Primary Industries down there was quietly abandoned. So, how is it used and for what purpose? Um, We've been using 1080 now in Australia since the 1950s. It started off as a poison rabbit bait and has been used um, for that purpose for 60 years. And yet, rabbits are still deemed the number one agricultural pest in Australia. And if you look at my table there, um, the cost of rabbits to agriculture is, um, on the high side, would be $250 million. So, is it working? Uh, I don't think so. So um, it's also used to manage other pest species like our foxes, feral cats, feral pigs. It's also used to manage native species. Um, in Tasmania, um, there, you know, historically there was a lot of uh, 1080 spread in forestry areas to kill off our little paddy melons and Bennett's wallabies and possums because they impacted on the seedlings. And um, these little guys were killed in numbers of up to 200,000 at a time. Um, and they can you know, experience an agonising 44 hours of, to die. Um, our dingoes are also being killed under the label of wild dogs. And some of the other panel people will talk about that um, more fully. So um, animal control technologies in Australia make a whole variety of um, pre-prepared baits um, with um, 1080. So we've got rabbit baits, fox baits, um, feral pig baits, wild dog baits and a a liquid concentrate that um, can be injected into um, raw meat. And PAX National pretty much mimic the same product range. Um, And then we have all sorts of contraptions that are filled with 1080. This is one that's um, for foxes and wild dogs. Um, It's a spring-loaded device and the um, canid takes the, the bait and it shoots a capsule into the roof of the mouth that explodes and they die of 1080. Crows and other natives have been known to take them too. Um, Here's some other lovely weapons that have been developed. Um, One being a Trojan implant being plant into a little threatened species that would then kill a cat if a cat happens to eat it. Um, There was a a trial with dingoes where they had an exploding 1080 time bomb that went off after two years once they'd cleaned up the feral goats on a particular island, island in Queensland. Um, this is their new contraption, and there 's been a lot of money from government <coughs> put behind this, the Felixer. Um, it 's called a feral cat grooming trap, and what it does is it 's got um, laser detection um, sensors, and when it senses a cat going past, it sprays a sticky um, poison uh, liquid um, <coughs> on their fur, and they lick it off and they die. Um, and as i said i 've talked about eradicate and and history feral cat baits um, that our government have um, got the patents on so just to give you a bit of an idea of you know how, how toxic this stuff really is, a feral pig bait is probably one of the well it is one of the it is the most toxic bait um, that you can get in Australia it contains um, seventy two milligrams of ten hundred eighty. <laughs> And I've just listed some of the Australian native carnivores and their numbers that could be killed by one feral pig bait, Um, and these are laid in clusters of up to two kilograms, so multiply these numbers by eight. Um, Three, four-year-old children, for instance, could die from one feral pig bait. Um, Is it dangerous to humans, and what effect does it have? Okay, Here we have the United States Environmental Protection Agency. They class it as a category one of the most toxic poisons in the world, the most dangerous category. In Australia, the most dangerous category of poison, Schedule 7. Chemical of security concern. This is a terrorist potential weapon. It is odourless. It is colourless. It's soluble and stable in water. It's got delayed detection. Go figure. Um, Toxicology information from animal control um, technologies from their own data sheets. 0.71 milligrams per kilogram will kill an adult. So an 80 kilogram adult could be killed by 56 milligrams of 1080. One teaspoon of 1080, raw ingredient, could potentially kill 100 to humans. We use 200 kilos of 1080 in Australia a year. It could kill 4 million people. So um, if you don't die from 1080 but you're exposed to 1080, then sublethal doses are pretty nasty and can lead <laughs> to irreparable and serious um, effects. Um, mostly tissues that have high energy needs. So your brain, testes in men, heart, lungs, fetuses of um, pregnant women. And that's the end of my presentation. Thank you for listening. Um, I recommend if anyone's kind of interested that you do your own research. There's a lot of information out there on um, Google. So thank you very much.
3: was really scary reading in the newspaper about 10 days ago, Mel, that um, up in the Northern Territory a whole bunch of 1080s just gone missing. <laughs> um, we are uh, very fortunate to have questions from the audience and they've been picked before um, we started here just now. So I've got one for Mel. Melinda Walker. Melinda? Okay, so Melinda's question to you, Mel, is... Seeing the government would like us to believe that 1080 is naturally occurring in native plants and native animals being immune to it and seeing these plants are only found in a small, isolated area in Western Australia and a couple of places in remote Queensland, how are all native animals living in the rest of Australia meant to
2: develop an immunity? Okay, hi, Melinda. We are Facebook friends. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So nothing's immune to 1080, so, when you hear immunity, it's actually not true. Some, some um, species are less susceptible uh, and species in the southwest corner of WA have a lower susceptibility because they're exposed to the plant version of 1080. Um, however, nothing's immune. And if you look at, um, for instance, like rabbit baits, there's apparently... 62 species at risk from rabbit baiting, native species. Um, If you look at fox baiting in WA, they did some research over there and they found that 95% of fox baits were taken within the first 24 hours by native species. Um, And you just saw then, like, a feral pig bait is enough 1080 to kill anything pretty much in Australia. So um, if you hear that native animals are immune, that's an absolute lie. Um, nothing's
1: immune to this poison. So, You are on 3CR, 855am, the Freedom of Species show. We are listening to a couple of talks that were uh, part of the discussion into 1080 summit organised by the Animal Justice Party a couple of months ago. Uh, we'll go back to the second speaker. Um, Marilyn Nusky
3: is our next panellist. She's a lawyer and principal of her own law practice in Melbourne and Castlemaine and previously in Queensland. Marilyn obtained her Bachelor of Law at Monash University as well as achieving a graduate diploma College of Law and Art Physiotherapy at La Trobe University and a Bachelor of Fine Arts with a major in painting at RMIT in Melbourne. Marilyn has been a member of the Barristers Animal Welfare Panel, a legal advisor for Save Fraser Island Dingoes a member of National Dingo Preservation and Recovery Program, and a legal advisor for Deerong Dingo Sanctuary. She's been proactively involved in the anti-1080 movement since 2014 because of its extreme cruelty. She also believes the impact of 1080 on human health has been largely overlooked. Recently involved in regional Victorians opposed to duck shooting, Marilyn supports all causes that mitigate harm and suffering to animals. Would you please make Marilyn welcome? I've got a multi-pronged one for you as well, Marilyn. Um, Who authorises the use of 1080 in Australia? What is the legal framework surrounding its use? And what can we do if affected by the death of an animal from 1080?
0: So, in Australia, the APVMA authorises the importation and use of agricultural and veterinary chemicals. They control labels and warnings up to the point of sale. Um, in 2001, APVMA called for submissions for a review of the use of 1080 because there were so many complaints about the death of non-target species. More than 200 submissions were received and a final review report was published in January 2008. APVMA watched their hands of any issues regarding animal welfare or humane or inhumaneness, um, because they said the AGVET codes don't require us to address animal welfare. Um, They acknowledged that non-target species did die, but not enough for concern, they said. Uh, They made changes to labels with more warnings about use and issues of cruelty and inhumaneness were not addressed, Uh, nor did the review really address the issues of human health because they said there are such strict controls around handling, it really wasn't a priority. So is, in fact, we know it's inhumane. There's no, certainly no kindness around 1080, and it's cruel. Its cruelty is willfully causing pain or suffering to others and feeling no concern about it. APV may said conflicting arguments in the literature on whether pain from 1080 poisoning is, is severe or not. They expressed uncertainty whether convulsions and writhing, yelping, were indicators of pain. They suggested, don't use strychnine when you've got something more humane like 1080 around. That's what they actually said in the review. So, what about... A lot of people say, what about animal cruelty? Um, animal cruelty laws. And yes, each state does have animal cruelty laws, but I'll give you an example The um, animal cruelty laws of Victoria refer to the Catchment and Land Protection Act, which actually allows the use of uh, poisons on so-called pest species. So they actually uh, regulate or statute out of animal cruelty laws. So not all animals have the protection of animal cruelty laws, but this does not um, apply to domestic pets, but I'll come back to that in just a moment. So, within Australia, we've got the National Wild Dog Eradication Plan at the top, which is delivered via the Australian Pest Animal Strategy 217-27, which is, surprise, surprise, facilitated by the wool product- producers of Australia. So, the framework is we've got the Commonwealth Department of Agriculture, our State Department of Agriculture, state authorities, for example, DWLP in Victoria, and each state has a regulator, oversee the use of 1080 and PAP in each state, and this is mirrored in each state. They don't, I mean, in Victoria it's dwelt, but each state has a particular um, state authority. So it's cruel and inhumane, but it, and it's also readily available. This baited sausage was discovered in a dog's mouth in old Golden Point Road area, Blackwood, Victoria, in July this year. So the so-called tight controls don't stop events like this happening. APVMA need to be informed about these kind of breaches if, if and dog deaths, deaths, any deaths. 1080 has been an ongoing threat to domestic animals and humans since inter- introduction. So we've got a newspaper article here from the Koori Mail, March 8, 1995, an Indigenous community in New South Wales uh, they were concerned mm-hmm. their dogs were dying. They didn't really understand why, but then they later found out there had actually been 1080, 1080, 1080 poison baiting taking place in their area. Their children, they felt, were under threat from poison dog baits. The children were playing in the same areas where the actual poison dogs were found. And now, 23 years on, in the Australian, August 10, 2018... Despite improved labels and warnings, there's no duty of care around its use, often used without control or respect for regulations in remote areas. This is very recent. Um, in Dulcana, 1100 uh, K northwest of Adelaide, uh, a, an Indigenous community lost 10 dogs. Um, these were the children's dogs. They didn't know what was happening. The dogs were coming back into the community, uh, yelping, screaming, frothing at the mouth and dying. Beth Conway is the manager of the Indulcana Arts Centre. She went, took her dog uh, for a morning walk in the creek where the children play, came back and the same thing happened. They've got no idea when the baits will be cleaned up. There was no warning of the baiting. There was no signage went up. So, what can we all do? What can we all do as individuals about in 1080? If you're opposed to it, talk to your neighbours. Set up an anti-1080 action group. Write to the ministers for agriculture, state and commonwealth. Your local MP, the health minister and state, the, the health minister, state and commonwealth, your local council health department. Explain your concerns about the effect of 1080 upon your health and your family's health, and your domestic animal's health. Express your disgust with the use of 1080. So what can you do if your animal dies from 1080? Firstly, obtain a toxicology report. In Victoria, DWALP have said that they'll actually um, carry out a toxicology report. They'll give you a copy of it. Or if you don't have access to that, obtain a letter from your vet. If the vet can actually confirm the symptoms were 1080, review your state regulations, identify any breach, check the Department of Agriculture website, and report it to the state regulatory authority with a copy of the toxicology report or a letter or the letter from your from your vet. Report the death in writing to RSPCA. Bring any breach of regulations to the attention of RSPCA with a copy of your report. Write to the complaints department of APVMA with a copy of any toxicology report or letter from your vet. The reason, even though APVMA manage up to the point of sale, they're always interested in knowing what's actually going on. Don't feel, just because people tell you this department does that or this one doesn't do that, just go for the lot. That's what I do. Um, In 2018, APVMA said uh, there was insufficient data about domestic animal deaths to really be taken into account. So that's why we set up the Australian Register of Animal Deaths linked to 1080. So go online, report your domestic animal death and that we're hoping if everybody did that or... You know, a good number. Then ultimately, we've got a database to take back to APVMA and say, "Well, look, there's a huge number of um, domestic animals dying from 1080 as well." Sign petitions. There's a couple on Change.org. There's a very good petition which has got nearly thirty-nine thousand signatures. I think it was um, Paul Anderson was instrumental in starting signature. There's Rex's petition for Rex. Betty, we saw a a, a video about Betty in Kenya. Sentient creatures creatures demand a ban on 1080 which has got nearly 15,000 signatures and I'm sure there are others. So, what else can we do? We all know if we're out and we see a sign that says no trespassing, violators will be prosecuted. We know that if we see that sign, we're pretty sure that it's um, unauthorised entry. We can't just walk across that land because it's somebody else's property. We're warned we could be prosecuted if we enter without permission of the occupier. But what if your sign said no trespassing, chemical or toxic? We object to 1080. If you bake nearby and an animal carries it to our land, which is a pretty reasonable expectation, I mean, your sign couldn't say all that, but... It's a reasonable expectation, it's common knowledge that a fox or a bird can carry um, a bait up to 2k. So that's a reasonably foreseeable event. And if we suffer damage because of that reasonably foreseeable event, because you've baited next door, you, you will be prosecuted if, you, if I suffer loss or damage. Just a thought, just something to think about, worthwhile. Putting up a sign, I think. So, a common law claim of trespass can arise when a person wrongly or re- recklessly allows something to enter another person's land. For example, spraying or dumping toxic chemicals. An injunction is something uh, a court may consider, or a person must take care. Well, a person must take care to avoid a reasonably foreseeable risk of damaging property or injury of another. So, chemical and toxic trespass, this is really relevant in urban areas and especially if a breach of a regulation is present and you have a sign. It's a reasonably foreseeable event if you do, in fact, suffer any damage. And now we come to human health. Human health was not addressed in the 2008 review as they were determined to be of low-priority. They said, although it's clearly too dangerous to be made generally available in its pure form, it has a very good human safety record (coughs) because of the tight restrictions on its supply and use and labels. Section 58 of the Public Health and Wellbeing Act tells us this, this applies to nuisance, which are or are liable to be dangerous to health or offensive and includes the use of noxic substances. Section 60, uh, a duty of council. A council has a duty to remedy, as far as is reasonably possible, all nuisances existing in its municipal district. So if there is, in fact, a a breach present, and you're aware that somebody has baited without putting up a sign or too close to your home, Within the 150 metre, would, wouldn't be unreasonable to contact the local council and say, "Look, I've got concerns. This could be a public health risk." And um, section six of the same legislation is a precautionary principle that if a council officer is informed of a potential risk to human health, health they must—they actually must act. Things to remember. So these are legal approaches which I've actually used, these legal arguments, potential chemical trespass, the precautionary principle and risk to human health. I've used these in letters to council health officers, letters to neighbours about chemical trespass and damage. I actually used this on, um, in a situation on the Ballerine Peninsula in Victoria where Landcare were baiting and they actually ceased baiting. Um, It was a a unique situation because the owner was conducting a uh, a business on the land, a dog training business, and obviously if any baits had been carried onto the land, then she would have had, could have had significant damage to her business. They actually stopped baiting. Made me realise this has got power. (laughs) So, oh, there's one slide missing. Not to worry. (laughs) Thank you, Marilyn. It was so informative
3: and it's given all of us lots of ideas. Um, we also have a question from the audience for you. Glyn Jarrett, could you pop your hand up, please? Glyn? Hello. Over there. Uh, Marilyn, Glyn's question is, we all know that the use of 1080 spreads very quickly through water and up food chains and can be a serious threat to human well-being there is also the high risk of 1080 getting into the wrong hands and becoming a plausible weapon in bioterrorism. The United Nations tells us that a global treaty to regulate the vast majority of hazardous pesticides throughout their life cycle does not yet exist, therefore leaving a critical gap in the human rights protection framework. Marilyn, are you aware of any work being done to close this gap especially from an Australian perspective, considering the massive and cruel threat
0: 1080 brings to us all? Firstly, I'd just like to say, and this is a multi, multifaceted question, I'm not... <laughs> but anyway, um, look, Australia was a founding member of the United Nations um, and they've always supported act- the activities of the United Nations, so I feel quite sure that they would support such an... Act- any, uh, Activities relating to treaties on pesticides. Um, insofar as in Australia, um, the, the Australian government seems to have a policy around education rather than restriction. For example, uh, yesterday APVMA announced that the poison glyphosate wouldn't be restricted. That's the poison that's contained in Roundup. Um, they said that they would rely on education rather than restricting the poison. So that's where we are at in Australia. Um, I, personally, in Australia, I don't see any real human health risk being improved until such time as 1080 is actually banned completely. It's just not possible. Um, It's used consistently without uh, reservation, without respect for any warning labels, so I don't see why that, you know, that's not going to change. Um, on the topic of terrorism, I've got a copy of the question slip to me. Um, anti-terrorism laws in Australia um, uh, come under the Criminal Code Act. I just think that there's such a wide chasm between the anti-terrorism laws... And the availability and use and um, of 1080, that um, it's another significant concern. I just that's that's what I think. I hope that answers the question.
1: You are on three CR eight double five AM, the Freedom of Species show, and we just heard from Marilyn Nusky um, giving us the legal facts, the roundabouts about um, the use of ten eighty, and what she has found has been a successful strategy in writing to health council officers, for example, you know, to speak out against this very cruel and toxic poison. Uh, Before that, we heard from Mel Browning, who gave us some pretty hard facts of um, 1080 um, in this country. Both those talks were held at the Animal Justice Party's uh, discussion into 1080 Summit a month or so ago. We're going to go to a break now. I'm going to play Cat Empire's Wild Animals, and then we'll come back with the final talk by Nick Papalia. (music) Music That was a tune uh, by Cat Empire called Wild Animals. We'll go back to the third talk that was held at the 1080 discussion summit held by the Animal Justice Party.
3: And our next panellist is Nick Papalia. He's been on the national trail to get 1080 banned for 25 years, published author of two books, Who Cares? and A Tree Without Roots, as well as an e-book, The Boomerang Trail. Along with his companion, Dingo Lindy, he's visited 127 schools and given 643 dingo awareness sessions, resulting in a nomination for Australian of the Year. And our question for you is, um, we've learned that 1080 kills large numbers of non-target species, such as endangered native species, but if we can for a moment focus on the one that is targeted, Australia's apex land predator, the dingo, Can you please explain why the dingo is targeted and the effect this has on disrupting the social structure of dingo communities?
4: The top land predator is the the guardian, the protector and the modulator and it keeps everything in balance. That's well researched and studied. The the dingo keeps the cat, the fox, the goat, the pig, the rabbit, the kangaroo and the wild dogs in tow. When those population of dingoes are decimated by 1080 exasperation takes place in a destabilisation effect and the dingo is different to a dog. It's it's awarded the title of Canis dingo as a different species to Canis familiaris because it is different in its manner and its role. The dingo is the top land predator. It's a territorial animal and when it's not exasperated in um, destabilisation and effect through 1080 baiting, (coughs) it'll keep any intruder at bay. So it'll stop those animals and it keeps... the the balance going, it's a modulator effect, and it's true. So when, when that happens, when 1080 is killing the alphas, the alpha dingoes are the teachers to the juveniles, and they're very intelligent dingoes. They have a 30% larger skull morphology than a dog. Um, they are very different. They, they only have one cycle a year. Dogs have two. They generally don't bark. They can copy and simulate a copy bark if they're in association with dogs, and hybrids do bark. But generally they'll howl, or they're very quiet. They, there's a whole lot of differences. But anyway, um, in the wild, the alphas will be the only two that breed. And if it's a pack of six or eight, those six or eight dingoes will be immediate surrogate parents to those puppies. So that's a different thing. And there are many, many differences, but they are changed immediately. If you kill the alphas, there's no teacher. And what happens is they run amuck with mayhem and anarchy and there's complete um, competition. And that's what will be happening with what is actually a human-created situation in the wild dog situation. Because when a dingo's killed, the dingo will go, and what's replaced is 50 dogs. Because those juvenile dingoes, they'll run amuck and they'll kill 50 sheep just in competition for fun. And then they'll mate with dogs, which they never do if you leave them in a pack, which is protected, which was researched by Arian Wallach and Arian Wallach and Adam O'Neill at Evelyn Downs in South Australia. And those um, scientific reports and research proved incredible. Uh, they actually were given the highest award for scientific research in Australia with the Eureka Award. It doesn't get any higher than that. And yet we, we dismiss it. We, we don't respect that. We continue bombing them with 1080. And where they've been bombed and wiped out across Australia, and there's many pockets across Australia where there's no dingoes because we drop 1080 everywhere, in the parks, in the wild, everywhere, right across Australia. Where those dingoes have gone, and we've got four <coughs> types of dingo, we've got the desert... We've got the alpine, we've got the tropical and we've got the Fraser Island. The Fraser Island and the alpine dingo are endangered species. The tropical and the desert, we don't know what they are because of the the, the population with the various spans of our country. We can't get a population number but they're vulnerable species. They're classified so red-listed internationally. Uh, We have to protect these animals because soon they'll be extinct if we don't do something about it. We're following the same footpath we did with the thylacine and um, it's not very intelligent. We actually have the world record in mammal extinction. And um, it's, it's, it's shameful in every manner. But what happens is that exasperation taking place when the alphas are extinguished and killed just results in mating with wild dogs. And it does. It just creates a mayhem situation, and I hope that answers the question.
3: It does. It was fascinating. Thank you. I think we could all listen to you all night about dingoes. I've already learned... A great deal. Thanks, Nick. Um, We have a member of our audience, Troy Evans. Troy, where are you, please? Troy, hello. Troy uh, would like to ask you, Nick, is there anything that we can learn from the events which led to 1080 being banned in other countries? How may we be able to apply those lessons here?
4: I think we should uh, wake up and start using the knowledge that's been attained and use that wisdom other countries are using. And it follows suit with our top land predator to the same situation in effect with what Ari and Adam learnt at (coughs) Evelyn Downs with the Eureka Wood, with the Yellowstone National Park and the top land predator in the United States. The first time in more than 70 years relocation of wolves was taken place in that particular park which saw... Aspen trees germinate for the first time in more than 70 years because they were kept in tow. It's a balance effect. That's what they are, the modulator, the guardian, the protector. It's very important. So what happened after that took place was countries like Denmark, Sweden, Scotland, Mexico, they used that information as knowledge and wisdom and they took it to good effect and they've relocated wolves into those countries to create the effect of balance. And what do we do? We continue using 1080. And then we have the former Threatened Species Minister, or Commissioner, actually, Gregory Andrews, release a comment when he was in power in that position, which was a betrayal, to say that 1080 was as dangerous as hair shampoo. Come on. There's no accountability. What happens? Why isn't it that Australians stand up for that? We have a duty of care. It's not a big ask. It's common sense.
3: Wow.
0: Thanks. Thanks.
4: 3CR has all kinds of music programs for you to hear, from blues to hip-hop, reggae, classical, punk, jazz, soul, indigenous, experimental, indie, metal, and other music styles. Check out 3cr.org.au on the World Wide Web for more info.
1: You are on Freedom of Species 3CR855AM and we've listened to three talks today um, by Marilyn Nusky, uh, Mel Browning and Nick Papalia that took place at the 1080 discussion summit that the Animal Justice Party organised a few months ago. Uh, we will put a link to the entire summit on this podcast page for the show because um, there's a good two two hours of material there and they are All worth a listen, Um, so please uh, listen to the other speakers. Okay, some good news a couple of weeks ago. In Florida, in the U.S., they voted to close down Greyhound Racing by 2020. 11 of the 17 remaining dog racing tracks in the U.S. will close. That leaves six left to close down before Greyhound Racing is gone forever from the USA. Uh, Grade 2K USA, um, that's an organisation, and many other animal advocates have been working really hard for this decision over many years. Oh, boy, if this can be achieved in the US, then we know we can we can achieve it here, surely. Also, I'd like to mention, let, let's talk balloons. Um, there are currently screenings around the country for a a fabulous new documentary called Rubber Jellyfish. In the trailer, it kind of poses a a couple of questions that I'll repeat. Did you know when one releases a balloon in the air? You'd think it would be... um I don't know, people just uh, don't think about it. They think it's just a harmless uh, second of joy, visual joy. Um, But when one does, it explodes in a certain way that when it drops into the ocean, it looks like a sea jellyfish that other animals can eat and do die from. And why does releasing a balloon not appear the same as throwing rubbish on the ground? So... They are some of the questions posed in the trailer uh, for the film. Uh, There is a screening in Fremantle in Western Australia tomorrow night, uh, Monday the 19th, Um, Brisbane on Tuesday, and in Glendale on Wednesday, Uh, in Mackay on Thursday. Um, More places next week, including Warrnambool, Orange and Hobart. So check out rubberjellyfishmovie.com that's rubber jellyfishmovie.com or the Freedom of Species Facebook page will post screenings as they come up as well. So that look the trailer looks amazing. I know that um it look it's great. There's so many um there's quite a few high quality good documentaries coming through about animal advocacy issues. You know, animal across environmental issues for everyone. Really, Um, this this one looks um, not to miss. Uh, Before we go to in psychedelia, which talks about all things uh, drugs and policy and the pharmaceutical uh, landscape, I'd like to thank very much Andy Medic, uh, who is a freedom of species host occasionally, and the Animal Justice Party, who organised the summit, the discussion on 1080. It was a very important event to open the conversation out into the public arena more. I'd like to thank Elliot Taylor very much from Animal Justice Party, who recorded the talks Linda Stoner from Animal Liberation New South Wales who did a great job hosting that event. Um, If you'd like to listen to the other speakers, as I mentioned before, it's well worth listening um, to the extended audio which I'll post on the podcast page. If you'd like to contact us uh, at Freedom of Species, please do at info at freedomofspecies.org, Facebook, Twitter or the website. Uh, Bear in mind, I can't believe it, we are coming up to that Christmas time of year and it's good to just try and, you know, uh, maybe just put together a, a couple of sentences about uh, pigs in the pig production industry as now, of course. There's a lot of ad- advertising to, you know, order your free-range ham or order your Christmas ham here and recipes and the like. It is a wonderful thing to get together and celebrate the festive season with family, friends, you know, whoever, it's great to get around a table and eat. It's a very noble thing to do, to share and um, have that joy. But it easily masks the... Um, the really horrific uh, lives that individual pigs have in the pig production industry, and as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, there's a lot of there's a lot of very uh, crafted ways in which the public is blinded from seeing that horror that exists in um, factory farming, or indeed in the also, if a pig is bred free range, they end up at the same uh, slaughterhouse as well. So one must look further into what these labels mean as well. Free range can mean that just the pigs are born outside and then they're taken into a concrete shed where they spend their entire short lives, about six months being fattened up for the market. So anyway, what I'll do is I will skedaddle out of here and I'll see you next week. Take care.
4: This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true, that if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change.
0: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast, produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.